Explorer. I'm Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the mariner's point of view, port by port. In this series, we discover the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, bad behavior on a boat isn't just bad for morale, it can also have devastating consequences, including injury or even death. But first, let me introduce our host, writer, director, producer, Mr. Scott Dodson. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate it. So how are you holding up under today's environment of protesting, frustration? How do you keep calm under pressure? Well, this isn't really pressure to me. Um, this is okay. I'm not having any problem. I spend a lot of my time in, in enclosed spaces. I mean, all the years on a boat. Like, for example, being in the Caribbean. We used to spend a lot of time actually literally inside the boat because it was too damn hot during the day to sit outside. So that's what we do. We would just be in there. So I'm pretty cool with, you know, living in small spaces. I think a lot of times it has to do with your interior mind more than it does anything else. Um, Physicality is okay, but it's just to sort of exercise what the interior landscape of your brain is doing. And I hear that during this period of uh, shelter at home, there's an increase in uh, divorce and arguments and a lot of tempers flaring. How are you holding up on that front? We're very strong-minded. We're two Sagittarians. Uh, We're two artists. We're both, we have our own opinions. But we get along fantastic, and we're surviving it quite well. And um, I think we're actually much stronger for it. But I think the key thing is, is in this kind of environment, you, you have to be patient. You have to allow for more. You have to allow for the other person to breathe as much as you want to breathe or need to breathe. And you can't begin getting micromanaged and saying, oh, you said it this way, and you know, that's an insult to me, and da 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 no, you did this, and oh, why didn't you do, take the dishes, do the dishes, why didn't you take the trash, you know, there's a million little things that we probably tolerate in a casual way when we're busy moving and we're only going to be around that person for a short while, but uh, when you're locked into an apartment or you're locked onto a boat, um, I've been talking to several friends that, uh, that are liveaboards and they live on their boat. And um, they're getting through it. They're okay. They're, you know, they have a routine and, and routine is the key. Don't yell at me. Let me be clear, people who yell at me on a boat, you will be thrown overboard and allowed to swim home. If you can't swim, then you should drown with a proper sense of decorum and shame. There is no room on any vessel for yelling. I'm sorry. Did I scare you, Todd? There's no room for yelling on a boat. And I'm serious. I'm serious. I I find that guys who yell, they resent the characterization. They don't seem to actually understand it. The reason for the yelling is all with the captain. He doesn't have to yell. The only time you have to yell 
is maybe asking for a cold beer in a gale or warning something of a eminent danger like a boom crossing coming across the vessel and attack that your hard of hearing brother-in-law is anxious to meet with his forehead. Yeah, anger is it is a problem. And most guys, and I'm going to say guys because it's not the girls, who yell have not prepared their crew well enough. Or they don't understand the skill level of the crew. So they end up yelling. And many times it has to do with their own insecurities and their own lack of knowledge And they compensate by yelling at people, do this, do that, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, tie it this way, do it that way. All of this can be avoided. If you're on a professional vessel, there's hardly any oral communication. People look at each other. There's a glance. It's teamwork. It's done. Everybody knows their job. Captain has to be patient. The captain isn't in control of everything. Oftentimes, he's a helmsman. He's just steering. His job is to steer. He can't be looking around. He can't be saying, oh, you got to trim this. You got to trim that. You got to trim. Let the trimmer do it. Okay? Hold your course. I've been on more boats, especially racing, beer cup races, etc. When the captain is so busy telling everybody what to do that he doesn't do his own job, and he picks up the nickname 60 degree lee that means he's he's 60 degrees leeward or you know he's back and forth across the course if you could imagine a big line of 60 degrees the way you win races is very simple it's the shortest distance between the points that's how you win races 99.9% of them helm your boat on its course So I'm going to offer you three true stories that will make you think about how you act when you're on board. The first story takes place in Antigua. There's a young girl. Her name was Linda. She was maybe 24. She'd come from England. And she was looking to hitch a ride on a boat to go back to Europe. Uh, She had stopped by my boat and had asked if we had room, if we were going to Europe or whatever. In fact, we were going to Europe, um, but much later than she wanted to go. And I realized that she had no experience. Now, I've taken people on trips where the crew hasn't had a lot of experience. And the only thing that... I can conclude from that is it is rare when someone who doesn't have experience manages it well. If you've got a lot of sailing experience, you've raced, you've gone on some trips, overnight trips, maybe three, four day trips, you go to an island, you anchor, whatever. You do, for example, if you do the whole, you know, the Caribbean circuit, you go to the Virgin Gorda and, and, uh, Uh, Antigua and you know you just sail around okay that prepares you but if you have no experience at all or if you've only been on a boat for a little bit going on a long transatlantic voyage 
is not cool. And it's, it's a very rare person that kind of adjusts. I used to take people on trips that they would pay for on my crossing. And it was about adventure cruises. So their adventure was, I want to cross the ocean. And I want to cross, you know, so that they could go back to their yacht club and say, yeah, this is, I did this, I just crossed the ocean. And, and sort of like a bucket list kind of idea. I chuck that up. And they're usually pretty motivated. I've had problems uh, through the 18 or 20 trips that I've made. Uh, there's always some sort of little rub, like where's the water? And you're only six days into the trip and you have another nine days to go. And they've used all their allotted water. And I'll get into more of that in later uh, podcasts. Yeah. I'm taking a shower every day. I'm shaving. I look great. You know, then, what are you looking great for? I, I used to ask, what are you looking, why are you shaving? You know, you're in the middle of the ocean. Uh, any case. So this story is about this girl, Linda. And I realized right, right off the bat that she wasn't experienced at all. And she admitted she wasn't experienced. She literally broke up with her boyfriend who had taken her dinghy sailing a few times. So her convoluted way of thinking, if I may say so, was that he's a dinghy sailor, I'm going to cross the ocean, and I'm going to prove him an idiot. I did need this kind of drama, and actually one of my mates, a uh, female mate, had talked to her a little bit more, and uh, we kind of realized, the two of us, that no, I'm sorry, we can't do it, but one of the things that I've always want to mention to anybody who's on a boat, especially husband and wives that are going to go, or husband, or you know, guys and girls, whatever, couples, the most important thing to do on a boat is to train everybody. And this is what gets back to the yelling part. Guys, you don't have to steer all the time. Let the ladies do it. All right? Women, you could work the deck too. Everybody keeps going. Women, you don't have to cook all the time. Guys, you cook. Take watches. You have to divvy up the skill set of sailing a boat between the two of you. Because, and this is a perfect story, here's what can happen if you don't have everybody trained properly. So we took Linda and we referred her to this guy, uh, Jacob. And Jacob is sort of your classic, I'm lonely, I bought a boat, I got some dough, I bought a boat, I'm in Antigua, I drink a lot, I left my family, whatever my family unit was like, whatever, but here I am in paradise, and I'm going to cross back over the Atlantic, or I'm going to cross the Atlantic, and um, I'm looking for a girl. I'm looking for a mate. Not to help, but to be my companion, to be my, my sexual object for so many days on the sea and to maybe possibly fall in love with. And, and all these silly dynamics that a lonely men that drink too much have when they're sitting on a boat in paradise. 
Now, sometimes it happens. Sometimes you do find somebody that comes along and says, hey, I like your boat. I like you. Let's go sailing. Let's travel. Let's do stuff. I have no problem in having sex with you. Let's go. A lot of times that doesn't work out, but that happens. It happens. It happens. So Linda was not in that frame of mind. Jacob, however, was. And Jacob, we could see why Jacob had a problem with socializing. He was a yeller. You know the guy. They know everything. They argue everything. They're right on top of everything. If you say that the sun is going to come up in the east, they have to go through an entire dissertation on the rotation of the earth and the sun before they agree with you. They have to make it an argument. So you're standing there for 20 minutes going like, uh, 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 what? So I remember Jacob had a 43 uh, Pearson. It's all ready to go. He had advertised in, in sailing magazines. He'd been all over the docks. He wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't, you know, particularly uh, charming guy. He was an American, actually. Um, but he, yeah, it was just this, this whole dynamic of what he expected, what she expected, this, that, and other thing. Well, anyway, he was very eager when Linda came by and asked him about if he's going to go across the Atlantic, which he was. And they got in, they, they, you know, they started out doing well. He wined and dined her. And in Antigua, where the boats are in English Harbor, you can kind of see across the way. You know, you can see what everybody's doing. And he, you know, he had candlelights, you know, he's whining and dining her. I don't think her head was into all of that. But she was, you know, she, she, she liked the attention for a little bit. Okay. And he would start the next day preparing the boat. They were going to leave. You know, he was going to take care of this. He was going to take care of that. And he, the, the thing is, is he started to yell at her for stuff like, why didn't you put this over here? That doesn't go there. This goes over here. That isn't right. You have to tie it this way. That's not how you do it. And I mean, really, like, it's like, dude, chill. But he kept going. So we watched the two of them for about three, four days. And finally, he, he got to the point where he was actually calling her names and, and damning her in, with all sorts of language. And the dynamic was she should have stepped off the boat right then. She, should have, she said, no, dude, you, you go. But she didn't. She stayed on the boat. She stayed on the boat because she wanted to go across the Atlantic and she wanted to go now. And she was willing to put up with his crap. And we're watching this from afar and preparing our boat because we were going in a different, kind of in a different direction. I had to stop off and I had to go from Antigua to St. Martin. And then from St. Martin, I was going to go across the Atlantic from there. They were leaving from, Jacob was leaving from Antigua, and he was going to go straight to Europe. So he had a little bit different course kind of combination thing. A week later, we took off for St. Martin, and we left Jacob and Linda, him yelling at her and her just taking it, which we couldn't believe. Anyway, that whole dynamic we were happy to get rid of. We stopped off in St. Martin for a couple of days. I had to pick up some parts. St. Martin, by the way, is a 
great place in the Caribbean to pick up any kind of boating part that you need. They have the island is usually pretty full of some rare uh, kit if you need it. Um, it was an impeller, I think I was picking up. Any case, cruise all ready, fifteen knot wind, south southwest, and off we went. So we're on our way to Europe, settling in, looking great, going along. The next day, we look way off in the distance, and it was actually my mate said, there's a sailboat over there. And we looked at the sailboat, and it was pretty far. It was about three, four miles away. And it was there were no sails up. It was just drifting. And we could see at the top of the mast, there was a body. Literally, Jacob was hanging from the top of the mast. We investigated. It's the only thing to do, the right thing to do. We went over there. Linda was in a complete panic. One, because A, she didn't know how to operate the radio. She didn't know how to, believe it or not, push the button on the microphone to speak. She was in a complete panic. She didn't know how to to drive the boat. They had left and she had been driving around literally in circles with the engine on, just driving around in circles. She couldn't, she couldn't see land. She didn't, couldn't read a compass. She didn't know where to go. I, I still today truly, truly pity that feeling she must have felt. I mean, how, how horrible would that be? She just had no idea which way to go. She had no clue about sunrise, sunset, east, west, whatever. And the entire time, she had Jacob shackled to the top of the mast. We went over. I jumped on the boat and got her sorted out. The, we were in a position where Antigua was, a, was actually closer than, um, than St. Martin for us. So we decided we were going to go back to Antigua. So uh, my mate, another mate, a, a male, I got him to come over and get on the boat. He was pretty cool, although it actually eventually freaked him out, uh, and to drive the boat back to Antigua. And as it turns out, he ran out of gas almost immediately. So we put a tow line out on the boat and literally had, had her, Linda, come and get on our boat and, and the girls you know, tried to calm her down and assure her everything was all right. In the meantime, Jacob was at the top of the mast. He was dead. He had had a massive heart attack when he climbed up the mast. And when he was up at the top of the mast, because he had a fouled halyard up there, he had clipped himself on to the headstay so that he would would have to fight the the halyard he was on. He had to lift his halyard up over. Anyway, it's complicated. In any case, he was clipped up there. Impossible to get him down. To be honest, it was it was insa- it was insanely difficult. So we literally towed that boat back to Antigua. And of course, when we got a little bit closer, we got into Via Jeffrey. 
we gave the Antigua police a call and the Coast Guard actually came out. They put people on the boat, they took over the tow and they, they ordered us all to come into Antigua, into the harbor. So into the harbor we went with Jacob still hanging from the mast. She went, poor Linda, went through a magistrate process that accused her of murdering Jacob. I was called as an expert witness and several other captains were called as expert witnesses. It took five hours for the, the Antiguan Coast Guard to get Jacob up off the top of the mast. And they had to use a fire truck to do it. A ladder, a hook and ladder truck. And I think there was only one hook and ladder truck in the whole island of Antigua. And they went up, they they got him off, thank God. All right. And he was a bit right because he had actually been up there for approximately seven days. So going through this whole process, we had to go to court and poor Linda, she had to go to court and she tried to explain that he never taught her anything and she was just hitching a ride and there was this, um, did you have sex with him? Was he your partner? Did you, did, did you two have a fight and you hoisted him up there and clipped him up there and all the rest is, you know, and it was an absurd, absurd idea that this would happen. This girl knew nothing. Literally, it took her three months to clear herself of this incident. And it was found to be just a massive heart attack and an accident. So, yelling at somebody and not teaching them, especially when they're green and a novice, a plebe, and teaching them all the ins and outs, especially the basic, basic, basic stuff. How to talk on a radio. How to push the freaking button. How to turn things on. How to turn things off. How to start the engine. How to steer. Okay? How to set your sails. All of these little basic things. So, my advice in this particular episode is... Know what you're getting yourself into with the captain you're getting yourself into. And captains, teach your people so you don't have to yell at them. Because you know what? Bad stuff happens. And it usually happens to the captain. second story has to do with a pro skipper who was an America's Cup captain. He was sailing the vessel Adele, which many of you know from the pictures is one of the most beautiful yachts in the world. And he ran Adele, what is she, about 130, 40 feet, something like that. So Adele is a beautiful sailing yacht. Many people are familiar with her. She's 55 meters in length. And she's just absolutely gorgeous. She is, without a doubt, one of my favorite 
boats all time. This America's Cup captain ran, ran the vessel Adele aground in Falmouth Harbor. It was a stupid move. He was strongly advised not to go over the reef. Now, Falmouth Harbor has an entrance, which I know a lot of you might be familiar with. And it's a pretty wide entrance. It's pretty hard to run aground. But right near the land and to the starboard side, there's a little reef that pops out. And literally, you can see it. And I think there's a buoy on it right now. Little red one. Okay. But you could, you could see it in the Caribbean, it's about watercolor. You know, if it's dark, there's a reef. Otherwise, if it's deep blue, there's nothing there. Um, and then on the port side, there is a kind of a staggered reef. And it's right near the land. You don't want to really go. I, I, I don't think it extends more than 50, 60 feet from the land. But at the time that the boat was run up on that reef, and by the way, we had the owner on it, and the skipper, and like a half a dozen other captains that could drive the boat and sail the boat, okay, because we had just done the Antigua to, to De Hay race and set a record time, and turn around and sail back. And this America's Cup captain spent a lot of time in the galley chasing the chef, drinking heavily. He was being paid to sail the boat as a celebrity skipper from Antigua to De Hay, Guadalupe. Great job. Great gig if you could get it. But we learned something about this America's Cup skipper that none of us actually knew. First of all, he was a yeller. He yelled at everybody. He yelled at this, he yelled at that. And we're like, you know, this is fun. This is a fun race. This isn't like, you know, life and death. Nobody, could, nobody cares about the record, except maybe the owner of the boat. Um, how fast it took you to go from, to, from Antigua to De Hay. Okay? It's not a race that's a big race. There's not a lot of boats that are in it. It's just a little, you know, it's just a little beam run down at 70 miles or whatever back. It's simple. So we also found out that this America's Cup skipper wasn't what we call a natural skipper. He's a technical skipper. He was, he had to see all the readings on all the dials constantly in order to keep the boat going in one direction. And a funny story is, is that when we're doing the race, he wanted to have a break. So I had the op opportunity at that moment to step up to the helm and, and to steer the boat for a little while, which was great. She's so powerful. She's so, she's so big and, and, you know, we were just, we were scooting along at like 15 knots. You know, the water was running alongside the boat. I mean, it was just magnificent and beautiful day, stout wind, just everything that this boat wanted in order to perform. 
and I'm going along and we go from 10 and a half and 11 and I have to tell you, I'm a, I'm a feel. I feel for it. I feel, where's the wind? I feel, I, I'm not a technical sailor. I'm not like, look at the the wind dial and say, oh, I'm, you know, six points to larboard or blah, 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 this, that, another thing, give away a point. I'm, I'm not that way. I just like feel the whole thing. It's, it's an emotional sailing kind of thing. And, and I think I'm going to do a, a bigger piece on, that kind of sailor when we talk to a couple of racing boat skippers, etc. So we go from 10 and a half, 11 and a half, 12, and everybody is laughing and cheering. Like, yeah, yeah, we're going faster, we're going faster, we're going faster. A lot of it was not so much, I'm going to, to, to be quite honest here, is that we we were really bordering on the edge of the vortex that comes around uh, Guadeloupe. Um, I don't know if many of you have sailed in the Caribbean, but uh, any island, it happened to me in Greece, is any island that you go around that has a sort of mountain to it, um, you get the wind that comes around the mountain and is sort of compressed like a Venturi tube would compress the wind or liquid, so that you have a band of maybe 15, 20 miles in which the speed of the wind is accelerated because of the mountain. It can knock you down. It happened to me in the Peloponnesus. I, I Going along on a perfectly good day and came around the basic corner of uh, one of the islands, and I ended up being knocked down. That, that's how powerful they can be. And then, of course, there is the other wind, which is the catabolic wind, which rolls down the mountain and hits you, and it could it could accelerate almost to gale force. But in this case, we had a nice, mild, you know, maybe it went from 15 to about 25 knots, and the whole boat just, could sh she could handle it just, just, just like butter, no problem. Just bring me more, and she just picked up speed. The America's Cup captain came out of the companionway like he was shot out of a cannon. What's going on? He yelled. What's going on? And he just ran back over to the helm. And uh, you know, we have a we're we're nicely uh, you know healed over. And he just stumbled up there. He was drunk as a skunk before the race was even over. And he grabbed the helm, and we all sort of looked at each other like, okay, we see what's going on here. And everybody was, you know, just watching down. So we go, we're like, we're up to, we're over up to 15 knots at this point. And this is the funny part, is that after you pass through this little Venturi-type wind that comes around the mountain, it becomes very calm and the sea starts to flatten out because there's no waves coming from the island itself. And we're just skimming along with a nice 15, 20 knot wind, but flat seas. And we start decreasing in speed. He's looking at all the dials. He's looking at this. This wind meter is not right. This is not right. This is... And he starts complaining. I call it CNG. Complain and grievance. All right, there's a lot of people like this, and if you have a captain that is a CNG member, 
complaining grievance, uh, get off the boat as soon as possible. So we, we, we hear all this yelling and screaming and he, you know, we finally get to the end of the race because De Gea is not that far um, around the western side of Guadalupe. So we make it, yay, everybody's happy. Nobody really thinks about the captain's problems. And then what we did is we had to get back to Falmouth. So we just turn around and back we go. Okay, we did a little celebration there. Um, some trophies were handed out. And then we sail back. So sailing back is a little bit because the wind is a little abaft of the beam. So we, we had the spinnaker set. It, Adele's spinnaker used to be, and I don't know if it is today, but it used to be the largest spinnaker in the world. It is a magnificent sail that when it pops, when it opens, the oomph that that gives that 55-meter sailboat is ridiculous. So we're just shooting back to Falmouth Harbor almost at the same speed. And we're going to be there six and a half hours, whatever. So we get close to Falmouth Harbor and the skipper of Adele, the, the, the standard, the regular skipper, Otto, he, he starts sort of whispering, wanted to steer. He got so angry and he, he was, he was just telling us how to adjust the sails and all the rest. And we were all paying attention to him because, you know, he's, this is an America's Cup captain. And, but we're all sort of realizing at the same time that he is, is not lined up to go into Falmouth Harbor very well. So there's a lot of activity on the boat. You know, the spinnaker's down to put it away. Um, you know, we're, we're putting all the sails away. The Genoa's put away. The mainsail is, is down. It's being, you know, taken care of and secured. Everything is, is, is ready to just slip into the harbor. The engine is on. And this America's Cup captain is screaming and yelling and screaming and blah, 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 blah. He's, He's like completely unhinged and we hit the reef. And the whole time, even the owner who's paying this America's Cup captain to be on the boat, the skipper, the regular skipper and myself and a couple other people were all going like, no, no, you have to get more to starboard, more to starboard. And he just didn't listen. And we ended up on a reef. 55 meter, beautiful, one of a kind yacht in the world. We were grounded. The Adele dinghy came out because we left the dinghy at the dock. It came out with a crew. We left the dinghy, the Adele dinghy at the dock because we were racing. They came out and the America's Cup captain just jumped in the dinghy and says, okay, take me to my hotel room. And he left us there. Well, in a way, it was kind of a nice thing, right? Because we didn't have to listen to any yelling. Well, it took us about an hour. We got the boat off the reef and got it around. It really it only took us about 15, 20 minutes to get the boat out. But you have to be really careful in getting a boat off a reef. Okay, you, you, If it's up underneath and on the keel, 
you know, you're going to scrape up the keel, but the keel's very solid, usually lead underneath. It's going to take some of the gel coat off and some fiberglass maybe gets scratched. But you, you just, you just want to be careful because literally the keel itself generally is attached by bolts to the hull of the boat. And putting that kind of pressure on the keel, okay, and the boat itself can, can cause some problems. I've seen it actually open up between where the keel is attached to the hull, where the keel is attached to the hull of the boat, open up and the water comes pouring in. I had that happen to a friend of mine who actually hit a sleeping whale. Um, He had a very thin keel though. So anyway, we, we, you know, a lot of looking examination, dive equipment went down, everything is cool, here's how we're going to do it, everything was mapped out, and we got the boat off, got the boat back to the dock, we all shook hands, we all laughed, but this just shows you that no matter what level you are, pay attention, don't yell. Your crew is there to help you. A highly trained crew is there to help you. Not to tell you what to do so you get your back up and have a grievance against them. Don't be drunk. Don't be arrogant. Don't let your ego take over the boat. I think a couple of us would have thrown him overboard if... if if we could. Now, the third story that I want to tell, and I want to leave you all with something a little more lighthearted, is about two Italian families in Greece. In Greece, during the summer, there's a lot of boats, and you have to squeeze in at the dock. And in this case, this was in Mandraki Harbor, which is one of the most ancient harbors in the world. It's where the Colossus of Rhodes stood, one of the ancient wonders of the world. The quay is, is full of history. Rhodes itself, full of history. I write quite a bit about Rhodes. Uh, in my blogs, and I, I urge you to read them, especially my Easter, my first Easter in Greece, uh, about fishermen and sailors and faith. It's, it's a story that I think that you may find touching and revealing. It's, the place is very inspirational. So you have a lot of people that rent boats, shorter than themselves, or even in this case, they sail from Italy. They sail across the Ionian, uh, they go through the Corinth Canal, they spend a month sailing around Greece, then they bring their boat home. So there's these two families. It's very crowded. So there's a kind of a, there's a dock master in a way. He's not really an official dock master. He works for one of the uh, charter companies that manages sections of the quay. So these people come in, one family comes in, they dock their boat, and it's all stern to Mediterranean mooring, and they fit right in, 
and they get everything secure. And the guy's name, the the agent guy's name is Leo. Um, Leo says, yeah, okay, you're great, okay. And they jump off the boat, and they're going to go out and eat dinner. It's typical. And then another boat comes in. It's another Italian boat, okay? And But what has to happen is, is in order to squeeze the second one in... Uh, some fenders have to be taken and put in different spots. I mean, it's really, really, really tight. It's, you know, it's it's like, f- you know, fitting your foot in a shoe tight kind of thing. You know, it's like when the boats are sitting normal, it's like a three-foot gap, but you're going to stick in a, a 15-foot beam boat in there. So this family, they get all squeezed in, and Leo helps them. And there's a way... That, and I'll try to explain it, it's almost better visually, that you can take a line, and when you put the line on a bollard, is you feed it up underneath the other line that's already on the bollard, and you wrap it around. So your loop is on top of the other loop, but it's inside the loop from the other. I hope that's clear. That way, if the other boat has to leave, they can just take it right off. They have access to it to take it right off. And if you want to leave, you have the same access to take it off. And that's how you sort of have like the Bullard um, decorum and, and, and stuff. Well, in this case, th- these are weekend sailors. They don't know how to do this thing. It never occurred to them. So they just sort of throw everything on and, you know, they tie their boat up and they get their lines going every which way and this, that, and other thing. And they, they didn't do anything wrong. And, and Leo told them to do this. And I should mention, in Greece, when you're docking a boat, there's a lot of yelling. And I love it. When you come in, and I've done this hundreds of times, there's people standing on the quay yelling at you, throw the line, throw the line. Greek guys, they have nothing to do. They're just hanging around, okay? Don't listen to them. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, I, I docked a 160-foot fed ship, okay? And I had guys standing there that were shoe salesmen screaming at the top of their lungs in a sort of crazy way is throw me the line throw me the line you know and i i actually informed my crew i said we do not throw lines to these people we take care of them ourselves but it's a tradition and it's it's a help they're being helpful so it's like you gotta you know you forgive it's like yeah 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 okay thank you appreciate that so all of this, there's yelling there, right? So they come in, there's yelling, and the lines get up, and the second Italian family finally gets settled, and they're getting ready to go. So they're going to go out to dinner, right? And I'm talking about both families. This is a husband and wife, two children, and a grandmother. Same. Same boat. Same two boats. Same family structure. So about an hour later... The first family comes back and they see this boat next to them and and their fenders are changed and the lines are different and they get really upset. Well, which is, and here's how I kind of ended up in the middle of this. My boat was a couple of boats down and I, 
I just said Leo, the doc guy, and I was trying to get to him and I don't speak Italian and there are a lot of hand signals and I said, it's okay, don't worry. And Leo will be back and he'll sort you all out. This is what he said. Well, in the meantime, the second family comes back and they don't know what's going on. And the first family is sort of starts yelling at them. Well, it's husband on husband and they're yelling at each other in Italian and they're pointing and the hands are flying. And this is, this is a very bad thing that I'm doing in terms of making a caricature of these people, but it's an absolute truth. And it was hilarious. So they're going back and forth, the men. The next thing is the wives, they start a separate conversation and they're screaming and yelling at each other. The kids come out. They're all yelling at each other. Finally, both grandmothers are out. They're yelling at each other. They're calling each other bad names and they're cursing and they're giving the finger and they're doing all sorts of things and the temperature is just rising and rising and rising and rising and finally Leo comes over and he gets into an argument with both of them. Leo doesn't speak Italian, he's Greek, he speaks a little English but that's it. So he's arguing in Greek. The families are arguing in Italian. And finally, something happens where they all come to an understanding that it was Leo that said that this is the way it had to be and that it's okay. The entire argument dissipated like letting an air out of a balloon. <laughs> Done. They all go back to their boat. And I went out to dinner. I came back a couple hours later. And what do I see? I see both families, both Italian families, in their boats right next to each other, passing wine back and forth and talking. And their grandmothers are, are standing on the dock and they've got their arms around each other and they're talking very heartfelt. They allowed all this anger. They expressed themselves, the, the truth of themselves in their screaming and yelling. But they allowed it to dissipate. They allowed it to go away. And that kind of honesty in yelling is emotive. It's freeing. It's truth-telling about who you are. And it is an art and practice in some countries. Some countries like Italy, Greece, Egypt, a lot of yellers in Egypt. But in any case, it's, 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 a, it's a cleansing kind of thing. And it's also, it shows who you are and what you care about and how much you love. So after this sort of wild-eyed profound anger you become you're more during that you're more honest and you're more vulnerable so this is a positive thing about anger and it's a positive thing about yelling which i wanted to leave you with because you don't have to yell circumstances could be all fit if you bring your anger um you're going to get anger yeah there's I've been, I've been upset. I've yelled. I, I remember very distinctly yelling at somebody about tying a line on the dock as we were docking the boat. 
and he he didn't get it right. And I, I yelled at him, I barked at him. And then he told me, he says, I never learned how to do this. And I had made this assumption about his skill set. And it kind of freaked me out that he didn't know how to do that because it's a pretty basic skill. And I, I, I apologize and he was really hurt. And he's a, and I'll shout out to Justin, you know what I'm talking about. And I, I still feel bad about that. I should have realized. But anger doesn't get you anywhere on a boat. And I'm thinking of, of Moby Dick and Captain Ahab, who's basically frothing with uh, vengeance when he sees the white whale at the end of the at the end of the novel, and he begins to scream. And Ishmael, who narrates the book, already understands Ahab's uh, rage as as being treacherous and evil, and he thinks that that rage and 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 that anger um, is only God's right and God's privilege. But Ahab is consumed by his anger and he won't give up, even in death. And he says at the end of the book, Towards thee I roll, thou all-destroying but unconquerable whale, to the last I grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. And with that, Ahab and most of his men are swallowed up by the sea, screaming as they tumble into the surf. It's a beautiful end to the book. It's a beautiful end to the story. In an odd sense, it's a beautiful end to the book. And it's an excellent lesson for those that want to yell on a boat. Thank you. We've all had to yell at people from time to time. What is it that usually gets you upset the most on a boat? Incompetence laziness incompetence one laziness two um malevolence three yeah there's those sort of things working against the teamwork i'm going to do a blog and a podcast uh later about mutiny and we'll see how that goes but basically, yeah, probably probably incompetence is the one. That's why I always try to tell um, captains, and even I've probably trained over 100 captains in the last 40, 45 years. You know, they were my mates, and I trained them up to be captains, got them to take tests, help them with their sea time, taught them a lot. Because this is a, this is a business, it's not so much about book learning, but it's about experience. The more experience you have, the better you get at it, or at least that's the that's that's the general wisdom. I would say 
that when incompetence hits, you have to sometimes it's it's like you're embarrassed to be yelling at somebody because they don't know. And if you're yelling at somebody because they just don't know what you want or how to do it or don't understand the language, then that's on you. That's your fault. But if it's somebody that's just being lazy and is incompetent, like saying, yeah, I know how to do this. I know how to do that. And then they don't know how to do it. You know, you got to be patient. And I tr I'm not a yeller, but I can be a pretty good barker. That's a little bit different. I can bark, but I don't yell. Uh, <laughs> I see. I see. Yeah. I, I felt really bad for the the poor girl sitting out there on the Linda. boat. Linda. Uh, Linda. What went through your mind when you saw, when you realized what was going on? Oh, it was, it was like, we, we all went, I had the binoculars in my hand and, and I'm, I'm looking over there and I did not believe what I was seeing. I, I just didn't believe that there was a body on top of the mast. And, you know, I include this in my blog, um, there's a picture of a dead man on the top of the mask. He, it's not that situation, but it's something that happened. And it's actually something that happens quite often. Um, it's weird. But in any case, I, he was up there. His arms were flailing around because the boat was just rocking back and pitching and rocking and all the rest of this kind of stuff. It was like the weirdest. It was, it was like we couldn't believe what we were seeing. <laughs> yeah that's that's why you say training is key make sure that you train the people that are on the boat with you in case of an emergency mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um i used to train all my mates and um i'm eventually i'm gonna do a pro i'm gonna do one where i'm going to interview one of my mates that i had on the boat and she was terrific she knew how to sail the boat she knew everything about the boat she's a she was a real sailor but when she first got on the boat, she wasn't. She didn't really know anything about it. So it was like, oh, okay, I'm going to do this job. And she turned out to be a terrific uh, sailor. Yeah, you got to you got to train them up so they know what the emergency stuff is. You got to explain because a lot of times your mate's going to go through a number of rules, especially if you're chartering. You know, it's usually I usually let the mate I will I will say it, and then the mate will say it again. Usually it's the chef, a girl or whatever will say it again is like, don't put tampons in a to in the toilets. Don't put this in, you know, don't, don't put paper in the toilets, you know? Um, and, and it's hard for people to gather that in their head because their behavior is just to drop everything in the toilet and go on. But in a boat, they end up getting, you know, clogging up the pipes and you don't want to see that floating around on the outside of the boat if the, you know, the black water tank is full. And yeah, it's just a bad situation because somebody has to go down and clean it up and fix it. And that's usually me. So <laughs> and I imagine you don't want to do that while you're in the middle of the ocean. No, not at all. Um, I can. I'm blessed with the fact that I don't get seasick. But uh, and I can I've fixed lots of things underway. But um, yeah, it's, it's not a good thing. But the point is, is that the mates all are teaching the guests things that they can't do and can't do and laying out the parameters. And it doesn't hurt anybody's vacation to know what the rules of the boat are. And then once everybody kind of gets their 
you know, gets comfortable with it, they're fine. But as far as the mate, she's got to know how to, he or she has to know how to drive the boat. They have to know how to start the engine. They have to know how to turn the engine off, which in some boats can be a complicated affair. They have to be able to operate the radio. And in some cases, they have to be able to operate or get the emergency life rafts out. They got to figure out how they, they can drive the dinghy. Can they open up? Because a lot of boaters will use a dinghy um, as their life raft, sort of. And then the sailing aspect, you know, how to get the anchor up. What do you do? How do you push a button? What button do you push? Get the windlass moving forward, you know, which sails do you hoist here and all this kind of stuff. So it, it's a long but profitable uh, education. Because a lot of times what happens, you should get guests, especially in the charter business, where they've sailed a little bit and this is their vacation. And there's nothing they enjoy more than being taught how to sail, you know, how to read the wind, how to how to navigate, all the rest of that. So, yeah, it's 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 good to go over that. And and lastly, have you ever had to throw anyone overboard? No, (laughs) (laughs) the bodies are long disappeared, so I'm not admitting to anything. Um, No, I, I, I did. And and I'm going to write about this experience probably sooner than later. There was one person that I wanted very desperately. I was so angry to throw overboard. And it's not the situation you think it is, but that was one thing. And then another time, I actually did throw a mate. We were at anchor, and that's another story. I threw him overboard, but he deserved it. Um, Lots of adventures there. So anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Tommy Ivisevich. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. Down in the South Texas streets of Laredo, I fell in love with a sweet Texan girl.